Yeah, come and sit over here. Oh, good. Okay. So, I guess we'd start by saying, welcome, Neil Gaiman, to the Cood Street Podcast. Thank, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for, well, I mean, you, you, you invited me years ago, and we've been failing to make this happen <laughs> for about as long as the Cood Street Podcast has been going. <laughs> um, but I'm glad that we did make it happen, and that I'm here. Yeah. I guess the main reason I think we're here really is to talk about the work of R.A. Lafferty, you're on, you know, on record for having admired his work. You've written a story in honor of him. When did you first experience his work? Um, I would have been about nine years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody, and I have no idea who, left a copy of the Judith Merrill anthology SF12 yeah. um, around my house, which was also SF9. I, there was sort of, there was some difference between the English and the American numbering system. Um, but it had two stories mm. by Lafferty, and it had a lot of stories by authors I, I grew up to love. And that was the first place I discovered them, age nine, yeah. much, much, much too young. It had, um, uh, it had uh, Chip Delaney's The Star Pit okay. in it, for example. But it had two stories by Lafferty. It had The Primary Education of the Cameroy yeah. and Narrow Valley. Oh, wow. Ah, Narrow Valley. So, um, and those two stories hit. And they hit and they hit hard. And I loved them. I I didn't know what tradition they came from. I didn't know, but then I didn't understand anything in that Judith Merrill anthology. That had Thule Kupferberger poems. That had, (laughs) um, you know, it had uh, a William Burroughs story. They do not always remember. It it was uh, just this wonderful mass of... Here is adult literature, and you're not expected to understand it. You just go for it. And I wound up loving it. I'm discovering Kit Reed, discovering mm-hmm. um, Sonia Dorman, discovering you know, all these, these fantastic um, Harvey Jacobs, just great writers. One of the things I thought was amazing about Judith Merrill as an editor is that she was doing in the 50s what everyone is doing now. She was defining... I heard once that she changed the title from the best science fiction of the year to SF, so that no one would know exactly what SF stood for. It could be speculative fiction, In this one, she actually had a little list. Uh, There was a one point between stories where she just does this little rant about Mm -hmm. what SF could stand for and talks about speculative fiction, science fantasy, and and, and it was like, yes, this is great. I I loved that, and I loved that going into it. So there was that age nine. Yeah. When I was about 11... Mm -hmm. um, my dad went to America and brought me back as a present two of the Walheim Carr Best Science Fiction mm-hmm. of the Year sure. anthologies. And it may have been number one and number three. There may have been more, more even than that. But I do remember, again, uh, that was why I read Thus We Frustrate Charlemagne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, ah. And actually, that was why I also discovered things like I have no mouth and I'm a scream mm-hmm. and, and so forth. Um, and for a breath I tarry and, and was at that point, um, I definitely knew that Zelazny and Lafferty and Chip Delaney and Harlan Ellison were the people I, I wanted to get to know. Mm-hmm. These, this, was, this was my stuff. Um, and I was ridiculously fortunate. And I still wish I knew who to thank, because East Grinstead Public Library in the London Road mm-hmm. had a really, really, really good, obscure science fiction section. Really? 
um, or well, not even science fiction sections. They were they were just on the, the shelves. Yeah. But uh, there was an English publisher called Dennis Dobson. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Cohen. Dennis Dobson was reprinting um, or printing R.A. Lafferty books in hardback, these very peculiar and rather rubbish covers, um, for essentially the library market. And my library bought them. So I, I, I was in this, as I entered my sort of teen years, by the time I was about 14, mm-hmm. um, not only had I bought my copy of uh, 900 Grandmothers um, with that wonderful cover. I I'd mm. found it in uh, Dark They Were and Golden Eyed. Okay. Um, yes. And, um, but I'd also started, you know, books like uh, The Devil is Dead, books like, um, you know. Past Master. Pa- well, Past Master. Around the Easter Wine. Uh, the, reefs, the Reefs of Earth. Yes. The reefs, um, yeah. Space shanty with yeah. the with the with the uh, with the beautiful Baudet illustrations. Yeah. Um, Arrive at Easterwine. I mean, all of this stuff was in print and around, and strange doings and these these. And sort does of, anybody else have something uh, further uh, to add? And I remember mm. when that came out. I, I, by that point, I was buying. They were the only hardbacks I ever bought. Yeah, I was buying them. Um, and then by the time I turned eighteen, I got properly both excited and confused by the um, science fiction encyclopedia. Okay. The Peter Nichols, John Clute science mm-hmm. fiction encyclopedia because one of the first things I did was turn to the R.A. Lafferty entry. And the R.A. Lafferty entry listed about a dozen books, maybe more, that I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There may have been it may have been as many as 15 or 20 books I'd never heard of it, but, but you know, it was a solid yeah. dozen that I didn't know anything about. So I'd, I'd give, when people went to America, I'd give them lists of these books. And then I discovered, um, and nobody could find them, nobody mm. knew anything about mm-hmm. them. And so I then discovered, again, in East Grinstead Public Library, yeah. in the London Road, some kind of weird artists and writers directory. And the Artists and Writers Directory had the addresses of authors in. Yeah. And I thought, well, R.A. Lafferty isn't going to be in there. And I pulled it down and I looked. And there's R.A. Lafferty in, in Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. So I write him a letter. And um, about six months later, I get a reply from him because he's... Uh, um, you know, I'd written to a long out-of-date address, but it had been forwarded mm-hmm. and forwarded and forwarded and eventually reached him. Mm-hmm. And Lafferty and I corresponded yeah. from, uh, I was, you know, from about the age of 19 through to about the age of 22. I, w- yeah. I would write to Lafferty every now and again. He would always write these beautiful, perfectly Lafferty letters back with glorious Lafferty sentences in. Did you meet him during this period? Never met him. I Never met him ever once. met him. Oh. Um, and um, would have loved to have met me. I didn't go to the nineteen seventy nine Brighton World Con. I know he was here, probably, in, you know, mm-hmm, probably within. Yeah. Oh, he, why he was here yeah. and he was probably within a few feet of our hotel room. Um, but I didn't go. I mm. didn't know about it. Um, and by the time I started going to conventions, he was no longer coming to England. I think he only came there once, and uh, 
then by the time I could, I was going to the conventions in America, the world fantasies and stuff that he was going to, he was no longer going to them. You might have been disappointed. Mm. I'm, I, by that point, I had got my sense from my mm. friends who knew him, um, even the ones who knew him well, Gene Wolfe, uh-huh. uh, Greg Ketter, that he was very reticent, very shy, very drunk, mm-hmm. and, uh, and not... And, and, and whatever was going on was going on in the uh, inside and not not coming out. I think part of what um, was going on during that period when people met him is something like what's going on now, because he was at the, a few years before, and he was at the Chicago Worldcon and in, in the SFWA suite. And, and again, almost everybody I've talked to who knew him during that period had the same experience I did. He was sitting on a sofa, asleep most of the time, uh, people would sit next to him, he would wake up uh, royally drunk and say some interesting, gnomic, fascinating things and then fall asleep again. But the people who were sitting next to him were all writers. Even then, in the, in the 70s, uh, the younger fans who had made it into the Cephalus Suite were, were asking, why are all the major writers in the field wanting to sit next to this drunken old man? Uh, and we're still doing that. We're still trying to get people other than writers um, to pay attention. I guess the, the thing we've not touched on yet, which is worth talking about, is what is it about Lafferty's writing itself that makes it so entrancing? Because he writes these... Well, first of all, the sentences. Yeah. The actual mm. words yeah. are beautiful. Yeah. And they bounce. They have this, this yeah. amazing sort of... Um, the, the, the way he deploys words... Um, is absolutely delightful. It takes him a while yeah. to get there. The early, you know, the stuff that he wrote in the um, in the late fifties, the yeah. early sixties, mm. um, a lot of the reprinted stuff, where he's trying to be normal. Yeah, um, it doesn't have it. It doesn't always have it. But there's, yeah. the, but there is a. There comes a point very rapidly yeah. by 1963, he is writing like himself. Yeah, and. Um, and and it is unmistakable. It yeah. is unmissable. You the, mm. nobody else put sentences together no. like that. Weird little rhetorical flourishes, going from high language to low within the same sentence, yeah. um, breaking all the rules, treating important things as trivial and trivial things as important, mm-hmm. and then demonstrating that they are. Yeah. Um, th- 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 there's 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 just this glorious wonder. Yeah. Into Lafferty, you know, you look at a story like um, in our block, yeah, which is quintessential and perfect Lafferty. You know, it, it's it's what is it, three pages long, four pages yeah. long? It's yeah. it's that it's incredibly short, and it just talks about two guys walking down an abandoned city, yes. uh, you know, a, a rundown city block in a rundown mm-hmm. neighborhood that has obviously been taken over by aliens of mm. some kind yeah. but what kind of alien whether they're other dimensional whether they're whether they're other other planetary mm. we never kind of discover and it, it barely matters because yeah. they are lovely blue collar people yeah um and all the way he's he's playing with language and weird answers that that are, are, are sort of language based there's a girl who um who sets himself up as a stenographer yeah. on that block, and our guy dictates a letter to her. Yeah, and then she says, "Okay, now I'll, I'll do you the letter." And um, 
they go out and he says what are you doing in there and she says oh hang on what for 25 cents you want the noises too <laughs> okay and she makes the clicky clacky noises of a typewriter and then she opens the door and presents them with a beautiful um, the letter and the carbon copy yeah and he says to her how, how did you know how did you do that you, you don't have this is a tiny tiny room you do not have a typewriter in here she says okay I will tell you I did it with my tongue <laughs> and he says hang on how did you do the carbon copy she says with my other tongue <laughs> <laughs> and, and it also that story also contains at some point she is avoiding mm -hmm. something that he's asking and she says notice how foxy I evade your question <laughs> and I that, you know, I would like that I've never had a literary tattoo, but if ever I had a literary <laughs> tattoo, it would say, notice how foxy I evade your question. <laughs> which, uh, a lot of that had to do with, I, I think, being from Oklahoma and picking up the tall tale tradition, which a number of people have done that since then. But the, the thing that struck me about the sentences is when you read it aloud, uh, it has a kind of rhythm that, um, well, like I said, having heard his voice once, there. Uh, there's there's a kind of locution that comes from uh, the people who must have invented Paul Bunyan stories. He seemed to be in that in, in that league, um, but I've never heard him read. I've never. Are there any recordings of him? Has he ever? I've never seen one, or heard of one. But it'd be interesting to try and track one down. I wonder. Well, the, world, the, world, the lovely thing about the world of science fiction is it is filled with peculiar archivists yes. who uh -huh. are peculiarly archiving, yeah. and it's quite possible that somewhere out there, you know, he was a he gave a speech at a convention that they yes. have taped mm -hmm. or whatever. And I would love to hear it if there are. Um, but I, I, I think um, what fascinates me most about Lafferty is trying to find things with, with similar rhetorical flourishes. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that I've ever run into where I sort of got that same kind of peculiar buzz that I got from Lafferty, and it, it was like this you know, it's like drinking whiskey and then looking for whiskey again because exactly. there's never any other whiskey out there. And the only other thing I've tasted and gone, ah, oh, this is this is a similar whiskey, um, was a book of coyote stories yeah. um, mm -hmm. called Giving Birth to Thunder, Sleeping with His Daughter, uh, which was a collection of, of retold um, American Indian, Native American um, coyote stories. And they had some of those glorious rhetorical flourishes um, and you know the, 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 the you know there's one wonderful story where, where coyote gets into an argument with a rock and the rock follows him down a hill and and he runs away from the rock the rock keeps coming and finally gets to a, a, a river mm -hmm. and he crosses the river against all odds and then realizing that he's finally safe he just stands on the other side of the river and starts um, making noises and shouting at the hmm. rock and calling the rock names and the rock takes a deep breath and jumps across the river and squashes coyote and then there's just a line which says you know and a few days later people found coyote dead and squashed under the rock in those days you found coyote dead all the time <laughs> and that's, yes. that is a perfect Lafferty line. It's it the is, idea yes. that, yes, somebody used to be found dead a lot. Yes, yes. And with all of the implications of rebirth mm -hmm. and the implications that death is somehow trivial, yeah. uh, that, that is so gloriously Lafferty. Yeah. Um, I never read his Native American novel whose title I always... Oklahoma. I know, I, I always want to say Okra something. 
but I gather that also emerged from his fascination with Native American culture and that is there that, that kind of locution showing up in that novel because I, I don't know that novel um, oddly enough not as much I mean there, really? there are some odd but it's but it's an earlier novel mm-hmm. um, as well it's the I mean it, but it, it is it is tall it all's tall tales yeah right huge tragedy and it, and it is you know Tra- trail of Tears and, hi- and History. The first thing I read of his, and I, would, I distinctly remember the first three stories in order after that, it became, because they were all in anthologies. And like you, like Judith Merrill, there was actually an anthology called Survival Printout in the 70s, which was an ecology anthology. It was about, you know, and Inter-Urban Queen was in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember, okay, that was really, really striking. I went from that to Slow Tuesday Night to narrow valley and then after that it's like I was doing what you were doing Um, everything else but one of the things which I don't think um, he gets credit for is well Interurban Queen could be could have been written yesterday it could have been on Uh, Mm tour.com because the kind of concerns there are two things the kind of odd concerns that he comes up with which are very thoughtful I mean even though he didn't really I guess think of himself as a science fiction writer. They were the only editors who'd buy what he was writing. There are some striking ideas. So the his. Um I think you've got some. I mean, Slow Tuesday Night fascinates me. Um, I, and, uh, but Slow Tuesday Night, just nipping away from Lafferty for a moment it, and into a weird wider point. Um, when I was a kid, reading science fiction. Mm-hmm. And by kid, let's say 12. Mm-hmm. It's 1971, um, 72, 73, mm-hmm. around there. I'm, let's say 73. I'm 12 years old. And um, I thought there was hard science fiction, and then there was the soft, floppy literary stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you'd asked me to make categories, I would have put people like Asimov and Clark into the hard science fiction and I would have said these people are predicting stuff that is going to come about and then I would have put people like Lafferty and Ballard and Dick into the sort of weird softy edge mm-hmm. and they're not really because I'm looking at those people mm-hmm. even then going they're not writing about the future they're not predicting they're doing something else what fascinates me right now is when I go when I look at the last 10, 15 years, and I try and think of the future that actually described it and explained it, and the science fiction that actually described it and explained it, Slow Tuesday Night is the best piece about Twitter, about the web, about the speed, things happening at the speed of internet, mm-hmm. in terms of, of that kind of stuff. The, 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 the Ballardian weirdness stuff mm-hmm. um, from not even Vermilion Sands the stuff that I thought was was absolutely bonkers the you know assassination of Ronald Reagan considered as a downhill motor race the, mm-hmm. the, um, the plan for the assassination of Jacqueline Kennedy yeah all um, that kind of stuff um, and and going in and crash yeah and, and those kind of things I'm going well that actually in terms of the, the society that we headed into and the world of, of you know, particularly the, the area of the death of of Princess Di, and you're seeing, going, well, that's actually that's what happened. That's right. Yeah. And and then um, moving into 
the idea of you know the, the weirder, messier, softer stuff of Dick. Not the stuff where he thought he was doing science fiction, mm. but just the sort of the idea that you know you're in a world in which your toaster is going to talk to you, and a world in which well, that's you set your news feed to give you the kind of and you go no, this is the, it's it's actually the stuff that peculiarly is making so much more sense of the world we're in than any hard science fiction. The difference, although I think maybe we could redefine hard science fiction away from, I think you're right, I think the, the classic hard science fiction, which very seldom got anything right, was essentially taking contemporary modes of thought and just assuming they would continue into the future, so yeah. you have the same advertising uh, techniques that you had in the early 50s. But where the hard SF writers were thinking in terms of uh, this, was what going to, this is what's going to happen in terms of technological and social change, the people you're talking about were assuming something completely different, which is we're going to think differently in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the kind of psychic mode, you're absolutely right, Ballard sounded, sounds much more contemporary now than 50s Asimov does. Um, and Go ahead. I was just saying, what occurs to me when you're talking about this is that we often say that science fiction isn't really about predicting the future and that it's a misnomer to, or it's a mistake to look at it to do that. Yep. Is it that what's actually happened is that we've been looking at the wrong fiction? <laughs> well, I think that it's actually much more about, you know, there is a level on which there are some people who are are and were actually in touch with zeitgeists other than them, their own. Yeah. Um, you know, Ballard... Ballard got it so right. Memories yeah. of the space age. Yeah. Uh, but Ballard did get it right because in most ways he was just writing about what he saw around him. Mm-hmm. You know, urban England yes. and, mm-hmm. and translating um, everything he saw and thought and felt into science fiction terms. Yeah. But it was much more about emotion. I mean, I think it's in, in some ways it's about the ways that Human beings do not think differently. Uh, we don't change. The, 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 the people on the inside, you know, and, and the fact that he was much more interested in people and looking at phenomena. Um, but he became, Ballard at least, has became canonical. He became a mainstream writer. And other writers from that period, the writers who were selling to, not only to Knight and to Terry Carr, but to Seal Goldsmith at Amazing, um, some of them are Lafferty is one there was a writer named David R. Bunch mm-hmm. uh, who wrote yep. an absolutely bizarre a strange uh, robot story yeah very yeah. strange robot story I discovered him through uh, through Holland through Dangerous Visions he was Dangerous in Dangerous Visions, Visions yeah, yeah. Uh, and he had one book of stories out of, two books of stories I guess uh, and re- you read them today and, and you don't know again that this is a 40 year old story and you're thinking this is really innovative stuff this is the kind of language I haven't seen before he was yeah. he was a poet he was influenced yeah. by the beat poets um, why do some writers make it and some not I mean why is Lafferty not considered uh, a canonical writer as far as I know the um, I, th- I think I think Lafferty um, you know years ago I used to describe myself as sushi mm-hmm. and that was when there was only one little sushi restaurant in each little city Mm-hmm. And I'd say, I'm not a hamburger, I'm sushi. Now I am a best-selling writer, and I think it's in the same way there's an awful lot of sushi. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, someone like Lafferty is the equivalent of, um, you know, it is that, that the kind of food that not many people know they like. You have to try mm-hmm. it to like it. 
and you have to be the right person to to get there. Um, I have personally been responsible, I know, for a lot of people discovering Lafferty just by doing this thing of standing up and banging the drum for mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and people getting curious enough, they'd go and, and read stories and go, well, I like this, I like the way that it's, it's written. I think, you know, Lafferty, the, the peculiar thing about Lafferty for me is there is so little critical commentary about him. Now we've got Andrew Ferguson doing the, the he's stuff doing that he's d- doing and, and also doing this wonderful Tumblr where he just talks about each story and what it was and what was going on. Um, there's stuff that absolutely fascinates me in terms of what he was doing in the late 70s and 80s where the short stories were as good and as sharp as they'd ever been and got much darker and spookier and I wrote to him about this when I was writing to him and he said it was just because that was what editors were buying. So he was writing stories like Fog in My Throat mm-hmm. um, because, you know, there was less science fiction, but people were, there were editors buying horror. There were lots of horror anthologies and, yeah. and they buy, the, so you get those stories like Selenium Ghosts of the 1890s mm-hmm. um, or, or whatever, which it's are- a fabulous story. Oh, they're absolutely fabulous. But on the other hand, there was a point around the same time where the novels had become Impenetrable is the wrong word, but they seemed to be so, um, so inwardly directed yeah. that um, that they were sort of becoming black holes. The light was no longer—I felt like light was no longer escaping from those novels. Mm-hmm. I would I would read them and I would be enjoying them on a sentence by sentence basis, um, but I care about the Delante family. In reefs of Earth, mm-hmm. I care about those weird alien kids who've come to this strange planet and appear to be just spending their time on this planet, dying out in backwards Oklahoma as kids having kid adventures. Um, it's very hard for me to tell you anybody in Annals of Clepsis that I care about. Yeah, or mm-hmm. you know, the, the, or by the time you get to the flame is yeah. green and those kind of books. The the Cosquin Chronicles are get, they're, they're definitely getting harder. I love the Devil is Dead. Yeah, um, and there's also a level on which I think you know I'm I'm really looking forward to Andrew putting. Uh, th- there's a level on which you, I, I I feel like when you've got books in sequences, yeah, that are not being published yeah. in anything resembling a correct sequence. Yes. They're being put out over here and over there. You've, the Chronicles of the Argo, I don't understand. Yeah. Um, I, I know there is something to be understood. I know I love The Devil is Dead, which is part of the Chronicles of the Argo. Yeah. And I would love to know how this, what yeah. this thing is. Um, but I've never read it all in the same place at the same time yeah. with all of the stories gathered together and, and to know if there was something to be understood and what it was. So obviously there's an archival task to be undertaken to sure. represent this material to the extent that it exists and it is a curious thing that there's such a large volume of unpublished material and strange esoterica. I mean, Well that's the odd thing is yeah. because the first book I was asked to review was Tales of Chicago I think. And I had no idea what was going on in there. Before I could write the review, I had to have Charles explain to me everything that, that, that goes into this context. But even then, there was a kind of gnomic appeal to those 
yeah. stories that I knew I wasn't understanding, but uh, and there was also this odd reaction of uh, when you dig down to the moral center, there is that very conservative Catholic um, theologian, really. Oh, it's I mean, it's beyond. Um, I, I I wish I'd been shown the letter. I I asked Lafferty um, to introduce a Sandman volume. Mm-hmm. I think. I think it may have been the one that Gene Wolfe wound up introducing, ah. um, and uh, Fables and Reflections. And we, we asked Lafferty, um, and the editor would not show me the letter he got from Lafferty, uh, not only declining him, but informing him why this thing was a terrible, terrible thing, and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to have seen it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have minded at all. I, I yeah. think it would have been really interesting. Um, there is that. There were definitely those moments where you're reading a Lafferty story, and Lafferty explains very seriously why the guitar is the devil's instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, those moments where you do suddenly find yourself actually dealing with, um, you know, a, a, a normally his point of view is that of author, mm-hmm. and every now and again it it does. It's the, the, weirdly the Catholic theologian stuff doesn't bother me, but the the points where something is being written from the persona and the point of view of somebody for whom you know rock music is evil, mm-hmm. and um, and these kids with their degraded movies and their mm. their society and stuff, and suddenly you're going, this isn't the I don't quite know how you get both heads. Well, that's it, what fascinated that, me. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's not like reading C.S. Lewis, which after a while becomes offensive to me, at least. It's, yeah. there, there, there's a, it's a little bit... So Lafferty was writing out of a conservative space. I gather he hated Vatican II. Mm-hmm. He just was outraged at that. But he's not proselytizing. He's simply taking a point of view, a worldview that uh, is, 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 is that of... Um, a very conservative Catholic. We should mention a couple of things. One of the reasons we're talking about Lafferty and books is that we're all involved with the Locust Foundation project to reprint Lafferty in, yeah. in various venues, and that will be happening over the next two years. Next year is his centennial. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, next week, as we record this, he would be 99. Uh, and there are... It, it's one of those things where the influence may be limited, but there's certainly you, there's certainly Gene Wolfe, there's certainly Michael Swanwick. There are a lot of writers who have been uh, specifically shaped. And we've all tried to write Lafferty stories, and we've all failed in interesting <laughs> ways. You know, I think I think of Gene's Lafferty story mm. as one of the very, very few places um, where I watched Gene fail to do something. Mm-hmm. And, and and Gene Wolfe, I think, is our finest living writer. I think there is nothing that he can't do. Mm-hmm. But and I think he came the closest of anybody mm-hmm. to writing a Lafferty story. And suddenly you saw how hard it was because you're going, if Gene Wolfe can't do this, yeah, mm-hmm. and Gene is so good, and he's and he knows how it works, and he's putting all the ingredients in. Mm-hmm. But it really is it, a Lafferty story. It's it, a good one. It's like. Going to a little diner, yeah, where the guy says, uh, "You know, do you want the the house cocktail?" And you say, "Sure." And he serves it up, and it's the best, most amazing drink you've ever done. And you say to him, "Show me how you do that." And he does, mm-hmm. and it's so simple because yeah. it's only a three. Th- you know, it's right. like 
a jigger of this, and a dash of this, and you put it in your shake, and you go, how hard can that be? And you go home, <laughs> and you go, okay, jigger of this, dash of that, shake it all up, and no, no, that's not it. Okay, how did he do it? And it just doesn't have the twinkle in the eye that mm. you know, while it was being shaken or something. It, it, it is a very specific thing. I tried. Um, I have. I have two Lafferty stories. One published, one very, very unpublished, which I sent Ray when I wrote it when I was about 20. And he said something nice about it. Um, it was terrible. But <laughs> it was terrible, but I got the voice kind of right in a weird kind of way. Yeah. And then years and years and years later, I thought, I'll do Sunbird. Yeah. And, uh, and I love the idea of just writing, writing a Lafferty story. Yeah. Um, and I discovered again how incredibly hard it was um, and tried to build it in the way that Lafferty yeah. built his story. You know, tried always to play in the same yeah. way that Lafferty would have played. You must have had a lot of readers who saw that story and who knew nothing about Lafferty at all. Did they notice that there was something tonally different about that? Uh, you got me. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Readers, the trouble with readers is they don't... I think, actually, um, the one thing that I always wish would happen at something like a world fantasy convention doesn't ever happen, um, which is that point where you'd love to sit in a bar and have mm -hmm. people sit next to you and say, okay, what were you doing in that story? Because the language was a bit different. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, Whatever. And you could expound. And they would say yes, and, and you would actually get really meaningful and true backwards and forwardsness. Uh, between readers, and you'd find out what their reading experiences were like of a story and what they thought. And at that point, where you want to go to them and say, Well, did you notice that this was a John Collier story? Or yeah. um, but what I do do is I always try and put in um, the introductions yeah. when anything has any literary influences. I will say this this is where I got this from, this is who this is. Because I figure there are out there, there are kids reading who are like me. There are little Neil Gaimans, mm. both you know, male and female, and, and trans, and, and they're all young, and they're exciting, and they're excitable, and they will do the stuff that I did when any of the authors, you know, when, when, when Lafferty talked about Fortean phenomena, yeah. I wanted to understand this, mm -hmm. and I wound up um, getting, buying a copy of the Dover edition of the complete books of Charles Fort and reading all the Charles Fort, so I understood what these stories of his like, like Nor Limestone Islands in the Sky, um, why were they talking about Fortean phenomena? I said, okay, I get this now. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of hope that there are people who'll read Sunbird and read the introduction and go, it all says this is, uh, this is influenced by a writer named R.A. Lafferty. I will go and find some R.A. Lafferty. Why is it important we don't forget R.A. Lafferty? Um, I think it's important that we don't forget any of our greats. Yeah. And I think too many of our greats... Um, you know, I'm, I'm as aware as any of us. Sure. And, and well, that, 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 you know, commercial success and popular success have absolutely nothing to do with how good you are. And the people who they call the writer's writers yeah. um, tend, on the whole, to be writers who 
you know, it's not even that they're writers, writers, it's, it's writers get together and we tell each other. Yeah. And we say, you know, well, if you like that, you'll like John Franklin Barter. Sure. And we go, never heard of it. Okay, and we go off and find it. Um, Robert Aikman. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. if, if I were going to put together, there's, there's a weird little list of people who I would consider the greats, um, including R.A. Lafferty, um, Avram, da- Avram Davidson, um, you know, Robert Aikman, mm-hmm. those, those kind of people. Uh, Shirley Jackson as yeah. a short story mm-hmm. writer. Um, who never really got the acclaim they deserve, or if they did get it, it, it was just a, a moment where the spotlight shone on them and then moved away. Yeah, and they get forgotten yeah. very easily. And those of us who love them mm. just want to make sure they're not forgotten. Um, and. There's a and the great thing about the particularly I think the fantasy and science fiction and horror fields world of genre is we do care yeah um, about bringing things back you know the books that are cool the, the works that are interesting often remain in print even if there's only even if they only have like three or four sure. people who think they should um, you know it's the people who brought Lud in the Mist yeah. back into print mm. made sure that, that, that Lynn Carter reprinted it and then have just kept it sort of in print in one form or another mm. ever since I think part of the understanding and we've talked about this several times is the phrase that Clute uses as a cauldron of story um, I think he used the ocean of story at one point uh, and being aware of a few bits of flotsam is not the same as being aware of the ocean um, mm. or, 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 or the cauldron or something so there are there, and they're all saying all kinds of th- things in that soup, some of which are important to uh, literary work, some of which are oddball influences from Aleister Crowley to... Well, Ford is a good example. Charles Ford sort of seemed to be very... He was all over the place. Eric Frank Russell, people... And you'd think, okay, his influence has died down, and, and, and here's Caitlin Kiernan writing Charles Ford stories again. Um, so there is a kind of sense of just... Dialogue is too simple a word. The science fiction having a conversation with itself is a cliché. But there's a much broader kind of conversation of fan- what Clute calls fantastica. Well, I think also, um, I think science fiction is a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think conversation, uh, science fiction is peculiarly a conversation that keeps moving. So um, with, with, with science fiction, it's why it was always embarrassing as a book reviewer to be given a book proudly written by a mainstream author who's writing his mm-hmm. or her first work of science fiction and who has no idea what else has been done in the field and suddenly you are going you've written a book that might well have been interesting in 1935 mm-hmm. and has nothing to say uh, because everything in here has actually been said and was said better and this is a conversation that we had in 1935 and, but um, whereas with, with, with horror, with fantasy, with that kind of world, I never feel like um, there's a conversation that's been had that's moved on. I feel like you mm. can continue to walk around the room yeah. and um, you, you, you are not going to appreciate M.R. James as a, as a historical writer. Yeah. In the way that you, you know, there's a way you sort of come to old science fiction writers. Mm. Um, 
where you're sort of making peculiar allowances for the time and for the world and the, the way that things have changed, um, which you don't, whereas you don't, wouldn't pick up, I don't know, Sylvia Townsend Warner's Lolly Willows mm -hmm. and make any allowances for time. This is a book that is a now book. M.R. James, it's now fiction. Robert Aikman's fiction is now fiction. And peculiarly, the, the, the first class Lafferty stuff. Yeah. I think, remains now fiction. That was my point about the stories that I was talking about. Because I did teach one uh, story. I don't think anybody could guess when these stories were written. Uh, I, there's nothing uh, that communicates with any trends stylistically. They're still unique. So, And, and you're, you're right about Aikman. You're right about, well, M.R. James is a particular form, I suppose, the, the, the Victorian ghost story. But um, I think my, my point on that is not that you would pick it up and go, well, this would have been scary if you were a Victorian. No, it's scary. It, yeah, it, it's it's scary. You, uh, you're reading it, and <coughs> it doesn't matter. This is happening to somebody in the 1890s. That that sheet moving up, and it's still kind of scary. Dracula still works as well as it ever did. And some things age, and some things don't. I mean, obviously, something like Nor Limestone Islands by Lafferty, or Manatee Girls, Won't You Come Out Tonight by Davidson, yep. or you know. Are timeless. The ones I keep thinking a lot about the ones who walk away from Omelas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, it's been sort of sitting there in my head and going, "That one, yeah. that's timeless." Yeah. And some don't. I mean, like I, I reread uh, the Man Who Loved Electricity, mm -hmm. the Fritz Leiber story, and it reads like an old story of its time rather than a, a, a current one, which is unusual in his oeuvre because a lot like Fritz Leiber's oeuvre because a lot of it is has that same timelessness to it, freshness and currency. We should be getting towards the end of our time, but I want to ask you, because it touches on where we started, do you find that the potential of a great anthology is that it is a Rosetta Stone that opens up a, a whole array of worlds for you that you wouldn't necessarily encounter in any other kind of way? I think, um, well, yes, absolutely. I think um, the great anthologies for me Mm. The ones that I look at and go, you you changed my life, mm. um, and and continue to change my life relatively late for me as a reader. You know, mm -hmm. Alberta Manguel's Dark Water yeah. anthologies that they 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 changed me. Um, Kirby Macaulay's Dark Forces. Yeah. Um, you know the the. Um, Going, I think it's, it was the the absolutely the Judith Merrills, absolutely the, some of those Walheim and what about anthologies. The, uh, the, the one anthology that comes up with almost every writer in this field I've talked to is the the Modern Library Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural that Herbert Wise and Phyllis Fraser did back in 1942, uh, because it stayed in print because it was available to four or five generations in a row, and it was a kind of you, you don't know that book. No, don't know. It's interesting. It's a, it, it was. Um, something that I, I, was it in print in the UK? Um, I don't know. I don't know that. Probably not. It was it was a Random House anthology that later became part of the Modern Library in the US yeah. and therefore stayed in print for forty yeah. years or something. Still in print. That one. That one didn't. I, I don't think I crossed that. On the other hand, you know, weird anthologies would always turn up. And American. I I I remember um, a crime anthology. I was given, mm -hmm. and, you know, a book of mysteries and, and crime that was, um, and I, I really need to go back and find it. There were three um, anthologies by Dorothy Sayers, 
um, which were published. I don't. The, the oh, this one was an Ellery. This one was, I think, edited by Ellery Queen. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had no idea who Ellery Queen was, but I was fascinated by. Um, you know, just it was just an. It, it had filled with things like locked room mysteries and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. There was um, an anthology called the the Penguin Book. I think it was no, the Pan Book of Wit and Humor, hmm. which was a book that contained extracts from lots and lots and lots of great funny books. And that's how I discovered Stella Gibbons's uh, Cold Comfort Farm mm-hmm. and yeah. McDonald's England There England and um, a lot of um, 1066 and all that. Mm-hmm. Sort of a whole chunk of English humour. Um, you know, trying little slivers and going, I like this, I like this, I will find more of this. The, the Sayers anthologies, I remember, were called the Omnibus of Crime. But they, the first mainstream anthologies, I think, that divided them into crime stories and essentially horror stories. Yeah. Uh, and that is, was a discovery. But we do need to, to wrap up at this point. Yeah. Uh, and 45 minutes of, of burbling, and we barely got started. <laughs> we barely got started. Well, I mean, but which is a classic, classic Lafferty kind of thing, because every world is one. That, every door is one that opens into a new world. Every history is a secret one. Every man is a, is, a, is a strange creature who could be anything, and that that's his world, and that's the magic of it, and the magic of the conversation that goes around it and being part of it. Gene Wolfe's Home Fires has an image of a ship with corridors and endless doors opening off to the side, and I thought. That's that's Gene's own fiction. Yeah, that's essentially what he's doing. And the same thing is true of Lafferty, and the same thing is true of you. Yes. And on that note, thank you very much for joining us and for making the time. It's been a great pleasure, and we look forward to continuing the conversation in the years ahead. Thank you so much. I want to do it again for okay. longer. Okay. <laughs>